Good morning. Glad you're here today. Uh, grab your Bibles and go to that passage, if you would, in uh, Matthew chapter 11. Let's pray together and get to work on our text. Father, um, we are so grateful that we get to study your word and to look at a passage, Lord, that honestly I wouldn't choose to um, study and preach, out, preach on if we weren't doing a book uh, study or a verse-by-verse analysis. It's an obscure text, but there's gold here, as there is in all of the verses of your word. And thank you for that. Just wonderful reminder of the sufficiency of your word, for the, for the beauty of what it is to us, and that no matter where we turn, there's always food there for us. And uh, there's great a feast here today, and I just pray that I would be... Um, a good steward of the meal that seems to me that you've laid before us today. So, Lord, we pray that you'd use your word, your holy word, to be the very word of God in the hearts of our people. God, I pray for folks who have expectations that have been horribly disappointed, and today they hold you hostage because of the pain of um, unfulfilled desire. And I pray that today might be just another step in releasing our own expectations and clinging instead to your wise providence. So, Lord, give us grace because life is hard and things don't turn out like we hoped, and yet we have a sufficient Savior who we need to cling to. And so we pray we do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we begin our fourth major section through the book of Matthew. And if you remember how we began, we started in Matthew chapters 1 through 4 looking at this section called He's the One. And just to review where we were in that, it was Matthew's desire to kind of present to us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And his primary audience is a Jewish group of people who he wants to show them how Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament promises and how he is the Messiah and be sure that they don't miss it now in his absence, even though they missed it while he was on earth. And then we went into a kind of a gutsy, in-your-face series on the Sermon on the Mount called Get Real. And man, it was great just to spend time in some really hard-hitting texts and ask ourselves, you know, uh, what is my righteousness and, and how do I really understand what it means to follow Jesus? And, and uh, what do I do with particular heart sins and, and really figure out what Jesus wants us to do and how he wants us to live? And then we looked at what it meant to follow Jesus. Uh, we saw some miracles, saw his first and early works. We, we also heard Jesus' instructions to his disciples and how he wanted them to do their ministry um, in the world as he sent them out. Our new section carries Matthew 11 and 12 with it, and we've entitled it Portraits of Jesus, because in these two chapters we're going to see how Jesus presents himself and how he provides some color, if you will, on who he is. The challenge is, is that while he provides further color on who he is, the crowds grow increasingly hostile. So Matthew 11 to 12 is filled with Jesus having conversations with a crowd or individuals only to have pretty intense confrontations come back to him. And the main problem that surfaces in these two chapters is the problem of unbelief. What Jesus does is he paints a picture of who he is. He shows them what he is like. And the people that he does this for don't like it. They don't like the portrait. They don't like the picture. They look at it and say, well, I know the Messiah, and you're not it. Uh, this, is what he, this is what it could have been, and, and you're not that one. So the challenge is that Matthew 11 is filled, and 12 is filled with far more unbelief than with belief, filled with far more conflict than agreement, far more opposition than support. And what's happening is that Jesus' ministry now is beginning to be assaulted. And it begins to turn, and... The rest of our journey will be a bumpy journey with belief and unbelief and opposition, and eventually you know it will all culminate in his crucifixion and then his resurrection. 
So Matthew 11 and 12 will show us many conflicts. If you just look at chapter 12 and verse 38, you'll see that Jesus is asked to prove that he's the Messiah. Show us a sign, they say. Look in chapter 12, verse 22, you'll see that he's accused of being empowered in his healing by a demon. Chapter 12 and verse 5, he's attacked for breaking the Sabbath because he healed a man on a Sabbath. And then he's even accused of further violations by allowing his disciples to pluck grain for food on the Sabbath in Matthew 12 and verse 1. In this section, there will also be some really strong words. Jesus will not mince words. He tells the rulers that their judgment will be worse than what happened to Sodom. It's not a way to influence people and make friends, is it? He also says, in a rather scary term, we'll spend a Sunday dealing with this, that anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Try and figure out what that means. He says that every person, chapter 12 and verse 26, will have to give an account for every careless word. And then in a stunning statement that almost seems insensitive, he says that his real family are, are, are not his flesh and blood, even motioning towards them. These are not my family. These are those who do the will of my Father, referring to his disciples. So this section is a bumpy section with lots of conflict, lots of tension, and it serves kind of as a transition into the next series of uh, miracles and parables that we'll get into in the next number of months. Now our passage this morning introduces this section of Matthew 11, by showing us a portrait of Jesus as the promised Messiah who does not meet the expectations of the people. In other words, they have an idea of what the Messiah should be like and Jesus is not widely accepted or embraced. And the main reason that he's not embraced is because of their expectations as to what he should be or what they should do. And those expectations led to unbelief. Their expectations led to unbelief. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about this, that I think that there are roots of expectations in unbelief. There are roots of expectation underneath our unbelief, meaning that what happens is that unbelief or a lack of faith or a crisis of faith often happens because life doesn't turn out like we thought it had or that it was supposed to. And the result in that moment when life doesn't turn out like you thought it was going to can be a crisis or even a failure of faith. That unfulfilled expectations, these ideas of how things should be, they they end up challenging what we believe. And disappointing circumstances can actually create unbelief. Let me give you a few examples of this. The first and obvious one that you've probably heard is an unbeliever who would say, "I, I cannot, I will not believe in a God who is good, who allowed so much pain in my life. What's going on there? Well, there's an expectation that my life should be either pain-free or that a good and sovereign God should at least be able to stop the pain. And therefore, the person thinks, if uh, I have pain and God doesn't stop it, therefore, that means that God isn't real. So there's unbelief. But underneath the unbelief are expectations, unfulfilled expectations. This even happens with professing believers, people who said they received Christ and then hard things came and they're like, nah, I'm out of here. This isn't what I bargained for. Somebody who heard that they could just simply go to heaven by receiving Jesus and have the abundant life and they didn't realize that the abundant life meant hardship, suffering, sacrifice, and pain. 
In fact, Luke 8 says, verse 13, they are those who hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. So what happens? What happens is, is they thought that following Jesus just meant everything goes great. And then when they find out that it doesn't, they're like, no, I didn't sign up for this. On a less dramatic level, I think every one of us, I think every follower of Jesus battles moments of unbelief because of expectations. I have. And the Bible is filled with people who did. Example, Abraham is told that he's going to have a great nation. Great nation. I'm going to bless you. Great nation. Problem. He's infertile. For 90 years. And it creates a crisis of faith. With all sorts of conniving solutions that created family problems and all sorts of marital conflict. And, and there's, a, there's a crisis because of failed expectations. Think of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. Moses goes up to receive the law of God and he's gone 40 days. And the people are like, look, we got to get going. And we need a ruler. And for that matter, we need a God. And we don't know what happened to this guy Moses. So let's, here's an idea. Let's make a calf and bow down and worship it. And you might look at that and you're like, where in the world did the calf thing from? Well, Aaron said, we threw the gold in it. Out came this calf. That's a bad explanation. But um, <laughs> where, you know where it came from? It came from expectations. You know, 30 days. That, that's okay. But 31, 30, 40 days he's gone? No. Or think of Saul. Saul, who... Before he was informed that the kingdom would be torn from him, was trying to hold his troops together. He was waiting for Samuel to come in seven days to offer a sacrifice. And when Samuel didn't come and the people were beginning to scatter and the soldiers were like, hey, let's go back home. Saul said, well, if Samuel's not here, I have to offer a sacrifice. He took the role of a priest and that's when God began to tear it out of his hands. Or think of Elijah, amazing man of faith, amazing man of God who sits underneath a juniper tree having run from Jezebel and says, I'm the only prophet who really loves God. Failed expectations create moments where your faith is tested. Unfulfilled expectations can create a a moment of crisis. And my guess is every person in this room who's named the name of Christ and consider yourself a follower of Jesus can think of a moment when you thought this thought. This is not what I expected. And at that moment, you have two choices. Will you go down the path of saying, this isn't fair, therefore you're not fair? Or will you say, this isn't fair, but I trust you? And that is the fulcrum of faith. Disappointment and despair can cause doubt, but they don't have to. So, this morning I want to give you three common statements of unbelief. They're application-oriented, they come out of the text, and there are more warning statements. These are things that I want you to know that you can think. In fact, some of you... You may be thinking all three of these this morning, or you can think of a season in your life when you thought those, or if you aren't in the middle of a failed expectation moment, just put these in your mind as a reference point for your future, because when these things come, we need to know how we ought to think and how it connects to the person of Jesus. The first one is this, I thought you'd change things by now. Ever said that? Here we deal with the problem of unbelief that's implicit in impatience. Now, where do I get this? 
Well, look at Matthew 11, 1. First, in verse 1, we have a transition sentence. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their city. This is a transition sentence. You probably have heard it before. Chapter 7, verse 28, almost quoted word for word there. It's a statement that Matthew uses when he transitions from one body of material to another. So that's just simply introduction into a a new section of thought. And we learn in verse 2 that John the Baptist is in prison. Matthew 4, verse 12 tells us that um, he was had been arrested. And this is a little bit of an explanation as to what is going on. He's in prison, and his disciples come and they ask Jesus a question. Now, why is John the Baptist in prison? He's in prison because John challenged the ruling king, Herod Antipas, because of his improper divorce from his wife and his remarriage to his half-brother's sister. As Jerusalem turns, right? (laughs) So Herod apparently had a thing for his half-brother's wife, And as a result, she divorced her husband and he divorced his wife and then they got together and John, being the kind of guy that he was, said, that's just wrong. And it got him in prison. In fact, it got him in a really bad prison. He was imprisoned at a fortress called Macarius. Here's a picture of the ruins of it. It's on a high, remote mountain near the Dead Sea, and it was virtually impossible to get to. If you were at this fortress, it was very difficult for not only for you to escape, it was hard for anybody to get to. And John is locked up in this fortress because he said that's just wrong, and he apparently has some kind of conversation with his disciples, and he sends them to ask Jesus a question. And what is the question that he asks Jesus? interesting. John asks him this question, verse 3. Are you the one who is to come? Meaning, are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? Just think of that. This is John the Baptist in a prison, sends his disciples to find Jesus, go and ask him, is he the one or should we look for another? What's going on here? Jesus' answer Verse 4 is, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the deed, the, the, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. What he does is he quotes a number of Old Testament themes about the coming of the Messiah, mainly from the book of Isaiah, and he cites these as sufficient proof that indeed he is the one. But it is his answer in verse 6 that is most Telling. Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He says this to John the Baptist's disciples. So again, John the Baptist, locked up in prison, sends his disciples, Are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus says, Tell them what you see. And then he says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The word offended is the Greek word scandalizo. You can hear the word scandal in it. It means to be tripped up or to stumble. It's the same word that Jesus used in Mark 14.27 to predict the stumbling of the disciples when he would be arrested. So the idea is that you would stumble over who Jesus is and thereby then reject him. So what is Jesus saying? He is telling John's disciples to look at the works that he is doing and then he adds this rebuke 
about not stumbling over him. So what's going on here? Let me explain this to you. John and Jesus had very different ministries. John's ministry was one primarily of judgment, which is why he's in prison. And in fact, when he describes the coming Messiah, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, he says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand. This is John's description of the Messiah. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will take the chaff and burn it with unquenchable fire. John was a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher. He was. His theme was judgment. He was law. He was truth. He was power. He was coming fire. Days are coming when God is going to judge. And what John anticipated was that the Messiah would usher in a new season of judgment. A time when God would bring divine retribution. And now he's locked in a prison... And no doubt he wonders how long until the judgment comes. But nothing like judgment is happening. In fact, the reverse is the case. Jesus' ministry had been more about teaching and about healing, about compassion, about judgment than about judgment. Jesus has been moving among the people. He's been teaching them in their synagogues. He's been telling them about the kingdom of God. He's been healing their diseases. He's been hanging out with outcasts of society like tax collectors and prostitutes. He he breaks the customs. He ticks off the Pharisees. He's not bringing judgment. He's bringing teaching and compassion and pain. But there's no fire. And John was looking for a judgment Messiah, not a compassion Messiah. Jesus was not on John's script. And that's why he said, Are you the one who's coming or should we look for another? Have you ever sensed that Jesus wasn't on your script? Ever wondered why God doesn't do something more than what he seems to be doing? Ever struggled with how unfair life can be without any sense of justice or resolution? Ever thought, how long is this going to go on, God? Why won't you do something? Have you ever thought, don't you see what is happening? Well, I've had seasons of that, like that in my life. When I was preparing this message, I thought of a season of our own family after our Our daughter died and we were praying and waiting on God for the conception of another child, which eventually was Savannah. There was this long season of multiple miscarriages and fearing infertility. And I remember the moment when after a long season of just like, God, don't you see, don't you know? That Sarah said to me, Mark, it's been so long. Sylvia's crib is still up in her room, and I think it's just time we take it down. And I remember packing that crib up, putting all the clothes in a box and dissembling all of the crib, and it was like every time I put something away, I was dying a thousand internal deaths. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, don't you see Don't you know how long, oh Lord, 
How long? And I think my experience isn't all that unique. The circumstance may be unique to me, but my guess is all of you, in one way or another, have a similar story where you have said, How long, O Lord? Are you going to come and help me, or should I look for another? Are you going to come and fix this, or am I just going to have to to wait? There are times when we would honestly say, I thought he would change this by now. So if you've ever thought, how long, O Lord? If you've ever felt, um, how how, how long are you going to wait? i got news for you. You're in good company. It's also the reason why we love the Psalms so much. I'll give you some examples. Psalm 35. How long will you look on, O Lord? Rescue me from their destruction. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Whew. That's a dangerous statement. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? And my favorite, my favorite is Psalm 13. It says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You ever said that? So the great thing is that Psalm 13 gives us the remedy. There's there's three things here that this psalm tells us. That when you're wrestling like this, and this is why I love this psalm, because I have done this so many times in my life that I've had to fight. My expectations were this, and you've disappointed me again, and now I've got to decide. Am I going to go down this road of despair that my life hasn't turned out like I want? Or am I going to choose to trust you that you know what you're doing? And how do you fight when your heart says, But there's so much pain, it's so hard. How do you fight and get your heart and mind back in the right zone? Here's how. First, you choose to trust in the steadfast love of God, verse 5. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. It is that you say, I can't do this on my own. I have to trust you. Help me, God. And so you make the choice to trust. The second thing is to take joy in what is supremely valuable, namely redemption. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You see, here's the challenge with misplaced expectations, is that they tend to show us what we really love. And what the psalmist suggests here is, I will sing, or rejoice rather, in your salvation. That when the bottom falls out and suffering produces these these, these dregs of self-sufficiency and they come to the surface, at that moment the question really becomes, what do you really love, God's plan or your plan? And and that's the issue. So what are you going to rejoice in? And then the final one is what I call the nuclear option, which is what I have used multiple times, and that is that if my mind and heart will not be captive because of a choice to trust or to take joy in what is supremely valuable, I sing it out of my life. So he says, I will sing to the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. I then choose to praise the Lord for his goodness. So how does the psalmist, and how should we fight unbelief, the unbelief of impatience, by anchoring our hearts to God to choose to trust, even though it seems as though God and you are not in the same script, and choose to hope in God's mercy, even though you thought things would be different. Oh, it helps my heart to know somebody with such Spiritual 
impact like John the Baptist asks the question, so are, are you the one or should we look for another? Because there's sometimes that our expectations aren't met and we really think that God would have changed things by now and when he doesn't, we've got to make a choice of whether or not we're going to believe. Here's the second statement. I don't see how any of this makes any sense. This is, I don't, I don't see the point of this. I don't see how it all connects. It just feels like I'm in this, this swirl of stuff and there's no connection to it. Jesus turns to the crowd and he answers John's disciples and then speaks directly to the people that have apparently heard the conversation. He asks them three questions. They're really all the same. The first two are rhetorical and sarcastic, and the last one is his point. The first question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A flimsy reed blowing in the wind? (laughs) Well, they know that John the Baptist was a lot of things, but he was not a flimsy reed blowing in the wind. No, John was like a steel iron stake. That's what he was like. So that was a sarcastic statement. Then the second thing was, is Jesus says, what did you go out to see? A person who lives in in luxury with soft clothes. Verse 8, a man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Well, John the Baptist was known for a lot of things, but fashion was not one of them. (laughs) He had a belt and camel hair. He's a rough dude. He was not known for soft clothing. So those two are intended to kind of generate a little bit of laughter or like, what? And then the third question is, is the target. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Now he's on. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. What Jesus is doing here is explaining that John is in fact the fulfillment of what was talked about in the Old Testament. Like in Malachi 3.1, about somebody who is going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. And what he's saying here is that John... His ministry marks the beginning of an entirely new era. There's a new epoch that's coming. Which is why he says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. Jesus is affirming John's greatness. And that John is ushering in this new season, this new era that Jesus is a part of. And that is why he goes on in verse 11 to say, Truly I say, among born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. So he affirms John's greatness. And then he says this, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Why does he say that? Because he's telling them that there's something new that's coming in that makes John's greatness look like nothing compared to the greatness of somebody who's least in the kingdom. There's something greater coming and John was the forerunner of it. Then Jesus provides even further color. He says something about violence in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, meaning that up until this time, the kingdom of heaven had been assaulted, and violence was being thrown at it, and this must be a reference to Herod's actions on the part of John. And then he gets on in verse 13 to this statement, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John... Meaning John becomes the culmination, and then verse 14 is the key. And if you are willing to, here's the word, accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So what is Jesus saying here? He is saying that John was the fulfillment of everything that was talked about in the Old Testament 
and that he is Elijah who was promised and that they should accept it. He's saying that God's word is true and it's being fulfilled right before them and if they're not careful, they're going to miss it. So he says if you are willing to accept it, that word accept means to believe. It's the same word that Paul describes in the book of 1 Thessalonians, people who place their belief in the Word of God. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. You need to see this text. While you're turning there, he also says, He who has an ear, let him hear. And we know of that because the book of Revelation says that over and over. And who does the book of Revelation, or Jesus in particular, say those words to? He says those words to the various churches that... John delivers this this revelation of Jesus Christ to, and every time he says, let him who has ears let him hear, it's because of the warnings that are going on in that text. So what's happening here is there is a warning. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it's connected to the word accept. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, here it comes, you accepted it, Not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which works, which is at work in you believers. So what's happening is Paul is commending this church because they were listening to the word being declared. And when they heard it, they didn't just hear it as man's word. They said, oh my, this is God speaking. And they accepted it. They believed it. They banked their life on it. They embraced it. They brought it inside of their own hearts. And they took what they heard as the word of God. That is faith. And what Jesus is saying here is he's calling these people to believe and to have faith. He's calling them to believe that God's word is being fulfilled right now in their midst. He's calling them to place their hope in what they didn't see or couldn't see, that John the Baptist is in effect this Elijah who was promised. He's calling for them to have faith. Hebrews 11 defines faith this way, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Coming to Christ means that you by faith place your trust in someone who you've not seen and you believe in a sacrifice on your behalf that is almost unbelievable. That's why it's called amazing grace. In some respects, it doesn't even make sense. That God would take the death of His own Son, perfect, without any blemish of sin, and He would pour out His wrath on Him, and then take His death and say, Mark Rogup, I will count it for you. It doesn't make any sense. That is like unbelievable. It is what the Bible calls grace. And it is by faith that we receive that gift and then it becomes to us life eternal. That we place our faith in Christ's death and thereby new life comes in us. And to the world, that belief in that cross and that sacrifice is crazy foolishness. And the difference between those who believe and those who don't is that God, by His great mercy, has birthed faith for you to be able to believe. And God, in His amazing love, has poured out His graciousness upon you 
in spite of your undeservedness. So it doesn't even make sense. The problem is, is that many of us live the rest of our Christian life as if everything else should make sense after that. And it doesn't. In fact, the older I get, the less wiser I know that I am. And the more I realize I can't make sense of hardly anything, it's just better to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be confident in myself, to be happy in Jesus, than to trust and obey. Coming to Jesus means that you believe, even though there are things that you can't figure out, you still choose to place your faith in Him. So when the crisis point of, I don't see how this makes any sense, come, you ought to say to your heart, been there, done that. That's called the cross. And we're just going to keep living in light of that. So here's the third statement. Hmm. Ever said this? This is not how I would do it. Hmm. Ever said, I wouldn't use them. That's for sure. Jesus concludes this section on unbelief with a powerful illustration. And what he does, he makes a powerful, vivid comparison in verse 16. He compares the generation that he's in to children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. The children who are sitting there are intolerable. They won't play. It's as though they're sitting on the side of a road and they're being invited to play. And they're like, no, it won't play. No, it won't play. We won't play your game. I don't like that game. I don't want to play that game. No, 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 I don't want to do that. They're stubborn and selfish. And remarkably, what happens here is that Jesus compares himself and John to those who are singing a ditty. So that little quote there of, uh, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. The children aren't saying that. This is Jesus saying this to the children. And remarkably, what he's saying here is that he's the flute player and John is the dirge singer. And that fits. So so Jesus is the flute player playing a wedding song and John is the one who's singing a, a dirge, a mourning song. And his point is, is that these children, no matter what song they play, they say, don't like that song, don't like that song, don't like that one. They're intolerable and he calls them little children. And you know this to be true, that children are intolerable that way. They just have their own ideas about what they're going to do. So I, I had this thing a couple nights ago that Savannah said to me, Dad, I want you to come before I go to bed and read me a book. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And once I said yes, all oh, the negotiations began. <laughs> she said, no, no, I want you to, um, I want you to come and, um, and sing me a song. I said, okay, what song? Um, let's sing The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. Okay, we'll sing that one. She said, no, I want you to sing two songs. I'm like, okay. What other song? Trust and Obey. Sing Trust and Obey, Dad. Okay, good. And I want you to read me a book. I'm like, no, 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 that's too much. Two songs, but not a book. Dad, and we're having this negotiation with my three-year-old, okay? Of course, I won, which made me feel good. But the fact of the matter is that she's intolerable. She has her own idea of what she's going to do, and she's going to tell her dad, no, she's not, what we're going to do. And Jesus says, this generation is like intolerable children. Verse 11, or 18, for John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's almost as Jesus throws up his hands and says, I can't win with these people, nor could John. They reject John because he's too aesthetic. They reject Jesus because he's too unorthodox. They say, well, John has a demon, and they say, Jesus is a partier. So what does Jesus say to this? Here's what he says. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. 
Jesus is saying the proof of this will be not in what people expect, but in the fruit of their ministry. The fruits of the kingdom will be seen in the lives and the actions of those who believe in spite of the fact that people look at Jesus and John and say, that's not how I would do it. Listen carefully. It is possible that your agenda, your expectations can ruin your ability to see what God is really up to. Say it again because it's really important. It's possible that your agenda, your expectation, can ruin your ability to see what God is up to. The people of Israel missed the Messiah and they missed the manifestation of Elijah because they thought they knew how to do things better than God. And we, beloved, do that. We do. That's why I often have to read and preach to my own heart Psalm 135, verse 6, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in all the seas and all the depths, there are things that God is doing that I don't have any clue about. And I have to remind my heart, Mark, you don't know because you are not God. And God help us if any of us were God for a day. I don't want to live in your kingdom. And you don't want to live in mine. Unbelief takes roots in our hearts when we think we've got a better plan. And the problem then is that we could not only be guilty of unbelief, we will miss the blessings of what God is really up to. In point of fact, we could get into a condition where we can't see the spiritual forest because it's missing a few of our trees that we planted. Where are my trees? Where are my trees? Where are my trees? I planted those. Where are those? And God says, look at the forest. So here's my question. What are your expectations of Jesus today? Has your life not turned out like you wanted? Do you see that underneath your potential of unbelief is the roots of your own expectations? Unfulfilled expectations challenge what we really believe, and disappointing circumstances can, they don't have to, they can create unbelief. So there's some of you who are here today, and you've lived your entire life rejecting Christianity, because in your mind, if God did this and this and this, and it doesn't make sense to you, then He can't be real. And the problem with your equation is you. And until you say, I can't figure this out... I need a Savior to help me until you come to the end of yourself. There is no hope for you, and none of the promises in this book apply to you. But if, oh, but if you could come to say, God, your glory is what I was made for, and I have sinned against you, and the only way for me to be right is to receive Christ. And I don't understand how all of this works, but I'm done trying to manufacture and manage my own life. That is the beginning point of God's gracious plan for redemption in you. So, today, like in Jesus' day, He invites us to trust Him to believe in Him and to hope in Him. And here's what I would ask you to do. Oh, to keep, beloved, our selfish and proud expectations in check or we will miss 
what Jesus is doing, just like the nation of Israel did. Oh Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the way in which our expectations really become idols and they create a challenge of your supremacy. And I know there must be a million different expectations represented in this room. And I pray that today you would remind those who have been hurt by hard providence in their life that you're in control. And Lord, let them just humbly again confess, Lord, I need to trust that you know what you're doing. And say it over and over and over and over. It's not a one-time name and claim it. This is a lifetime of battle. Lord, for people today who need to receive Christ coming away from their equation that you're not real because of the pain they feel. Oh, Lord, please, you, in order for them to see this, you'll have to open their eyes. And I pray that you would do it today. And then, Lord, prepare people who in 2010 you have dark clouds approaching. And today this message is not a remedy, it is preparation. So, Lord, let us mark this day as a day when you helped us be ready for dark clouds that someday will part and yield a bright sun of goodness. But in the meantime, they're coming and they're looming, and we want to be ready. So, Lord, thank you you never leave us or abandon us, that all of our promises in the Word are yes in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.